0: Well what a year it has been for the weather. Today I'm here at the Hunnicutt Estate in Somerset where I'll be meeting the National Trust's Head of Nature and Restoration Ecology, Ben McCarthy. I'll also be meeting some of the team here at the Hunnicutt Estate in Somerset to find out some of the radical interventions that they've been making within this landscape to improve conditions for wildlife and for people. ...in this ever-changing
1: climate. That's the PR person and the presenter with Britain's National Trust, Joe Dyson. And I'm Robert McLean, your host of Climate Conversations, and this is the latest episode. Welcome. It's so great to have you on board. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia... On the lands of the Yorta Yorta people, yes, they're still on the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, I pay my respects to their elders. past, present, and emerging. Join me now as we listen to Joe Dyson. Hi, man. Hi, Joe. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, good to see you again. Yeah. So. Tell me a little bit about the sort of weather we've seen this year and what impact that has had on wildlife.
2: The regular predictable patterns of our seasons are, are shifting to compound those pressures. We have these kind of extreme kind of weather events like the storms uh, Babette and Kieran we saw in the autumn. And they bring in a huge kind of deluge of, of rainfall, which uh, again just kind of knocks wildlife Uh, off balance and uh, adds to the pressures facing nature in the UK.
0: So tell me, what is the National Trust doing with these ever more unpredictable and extreme weather patterns?
2: So the challenge really is trying to understand how we can make our wildlife more resilient to this climate change and these extreme weather events. In Cornwall, for example, we're working really hard with partners to recover the chuff on our coastal cliffs there. Uh, In the peat district we're doing major peatland restoration uh, to lock up the carbon and restore those upland habitats. In Northumberland, at Wallington, we're reintroducing nature's uh, ecosystem engineers, the beavers, to really help adapt to climate change across our estate, across England, Wales and Northern Ireland. So we're really focused on transforming our estate so it can deliver better outcomes for people, nature and climate.
0: With the landscapes that the National Trust looks after, what has been the impact of Storm Babette and Storm Kieran?
2: So they've just been adding yet more pressure on our beleaguered kind of wildlife. And so we've seen from some of the flooding events, kind of real impacts on things like water voles where their kind of bankside uh, burrows have been flooded out. And that makes them much, much more vulnerable to things like predation, for example. So all of the work that we're trying to do at the Trust is trying to rolling out these kind of nature based solutions to tackle both the climate and nature crisis. And of course, that's delivering great benefit to the people and communities uh, who live and work at our places.
0: And so are there any other ways that the National Trust is adapting in the face of these increasingly unpredictable, as we've just found out weather patterns.
2: So we're trying to build richer food webs, we're trying to make it more messy really, more chaotic because actually that's what wildlife needs, this kind of structural uh, heterogeneity, this mixture of different habitats to support wildlife and create lots of different kind of niches where they can seek refuge under kind of extreme weather events.
0: Ben, thank you. It's been so interesting hearing about the National Trust and how they're adapting with this ever-changing climate. But um, I think I'm going to go and meet some of the rest of the team now on the Hunnicutt estate so they can tell me about some of the other projects in a bit more detail.
2: I'm going to hang out here and do a bit more exploring.
0: Okay, Bye. thanks Ben. Hi Jack. Are you right, Jack? Yeah, good thanks. What is this? It's quite incredible.
3: Well, we've got a uh, beaver dam. So this is uh, certainly the largest beaver dam we've got on the estate. Yeah, it's quite something to see really, isn't it?
0: Yeah, so there's quite a weight of water behind that dam.
3: Yeah, there is a lot of water being held up and distributed across the site, creating this fantastic wetland.
0: So I was chatting to Ben earlier and he was telling me about all the great work you and the team have been doing here with the beaver reintroduction at the Hanukkah estate and um,
3: yeah, how's it going? I mean, they're a work in progress. They're continually coming out every night. They'll work around the site, patch, fix up, make it a little bit bigger, move the water around. But they can put a dam up in a weekend in a small site. This is two or three months' worth of work. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can quite imagine that. They're they're real engineers, aren't they? They are.
3: Yeah, they're ecological engineers. They're amazing. That's one of the reasons we've got them here at Honeycutt. You know, they they're here to a- adapt the landscape and make these changes that benefit all the other, other wildlife you might see.
0: And so, any kits being born?
3: Yeah, yeah, so we've had kits born this year in both sites for the first wow. time, so that's really good news. So the beavers are growing in numbers, and obviously the more beavers we've got, the busier they're going to get.
0: And what other wildlife have you noticed since the beavers have created this new habitat?
3: So it's been really interesting, actually. We've got some very like definite wins. So we've got things like water vole moving back into the site, which are, are red-listed and really struggling in the rest of the UK. We've got... Um, Kingfishers flying up and down the river, Dipper's coming in, and we've uh, been hearing the water rail as well calling in here, which is a, a little secretive wetland bird, which yeah, is wow. really lovely. Yeah.
0: So secretive, I don't think I've even heard of it. <laughs> yeah, no,
3: it's uh, yeah. you can hear the call in the, in, if you come in here in the sort of early morning and stuff, and we've caught it on the trail cameras a few times. But yeah, it's fantastic to see all the stuff moving back in and utilising. And it's what we hope would happen. Um, but there's other great stuff going on as well. So we've got um, our, our river restoration scheme, which I think you're going to go off and see now.
0: Yes, I do want to go and hear more about the river stuff. So, well, I'll leave you to it here at the yeah, dam. Everest. But um, yeah, you. cheers.
4: This is we saved loads of wildflower seed. That's all.
5: So this is all grown recently.
4: Yeah, that's all wild carrot that's taken off.
0: Wow. So none of this when I was here earlier on in the year was as was as wet as this. Tell me what you've done.
4: Yeah, it's wetter than a knotter's pocket. It's um, <laughs> there is a lot of water on the site now. We um, we've created a wetland, so there, there was no water here before, and as you can see, there is water absolutely yeah. everywhere. And, and to do that, we just we, we filled in a river, which sounds you know really sort of easy, but 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 was actually really really hard. People call it stage zero, it's floodplain reconnection. You're reconnecting that river with its floodplain. What we've done is uh, the river had been heavily modified. It was essentially conveying water through the landscape really, really quickly. And we wanted to reverse that. But there was a method to our madness and it was about moving away from from drainage, from a a single channel thread, which is how most people think of a river. And the reason we're doing that is, is for multiple benefits. So to provide refuge for wildlife. So this is an amazing site for wildlife now but also to develop resilience in the landscape to more extreme weather that we're going to see in, through climate change. And we've got a really amazing and unique habitat here now.
0: Yeah, and what sort of wildlife have you seen coming to the new habitat?
4: So we've got loads of insects here. So loads of insects and, and, and lots of water loving insects, obviously, and that's all food for other stuff. When we come back to the team, you know, we've seen, you know, another another type of dragonfly or another type of waterfowl or there's more herons or, you know, we've got a resident barn owl here now. and. Um, oh. It's becoming like a real hotspot for wildlife. It's not to say that the rest of the state isn't good for wildlife, because it is. But this is, you know, wetlands different. You know, and it's, it's a habitat we've lost most of in the UK. You know, 90, 97% of the wetland in the UK is gone. Um, and, and, and it's important that we bring it back because for my money, wetland is a real sort of, you know, rainforest type habitat. It's that rich and abundant and by recreating this what we've done is developed a more resilient landscape and this site is pretty unique so i'm I'm really excited to see how it evolves
0: it really is quite pioneering what what you and the team have done here do you think it's something that other national trust sites might be able to replicate and learn from
4: yeah yeah i hope so i hope we can share some of our knowledge and experience and and so that this kind of scheme can be replicated um, you know wider brilliant You'll definitely have to come back next year and take a look and see how the site does evolve. Yeah,
0: I'll I'll be back in the spring. I'll take you up on the offer, Ben. Brilliant. It's great stuff.
4: No worries. Thank you.
0: It's been a real privilege today to spend the day here at the Honecutt Estate. Hearing about how the National Trust is adapting and looking after their landscapes in the face of ever extreme weather conditions. And it's thanks to the support of all of you that National Trust staff and volunteers here and across the country can carry out really pioneering work like this.
1: Join me now as we listen to 90 Seconds from Yale Climate Connections.
6: I'm Dr. Anthony Leiserwitz, and this is Climate Connections. Architects and engineers need to make sure that the buildings they design will withstand heat, rain, and other harsh weather. Ariane Loxo of the architecture firm HGA says that to determine what's expected in a location, the industry typically relies on historical weather data.
7: They're generally looking at the past. But global
6: warming is changing weather conditions, so LOXO says if architects and engineers do not consider future climate change, their projects may not perform well over time. For example, buildings may not have adequately sized HVAC systems or enough insulation to keep people cool during increasingly extreme heat waves. Or a property may lack the capacity to divert large amounts of stormwater during intense downpours. LOXO co-authored a recent report that suggest ways to avoid these kinds of problems.
7: We really feel like there's a need for architects and engineers to be at least looking at the data that's provided by the National Climate Assessment or by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change.
6: To make that happen, she says building codes and standards should be updated, and clients should ask architects to design with climate change in mind. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org.
1: Join me now as you listen to David Roberts from the podcast, Volts, as he has a conversation with the CEO of Sublime Systems, Leah Ellis.
8: Greetings, everyone, and happy holidays. This is Volts for December 27th, 2023. We are closing in on zero-carbon cement. I'm your host, David Roberts. Of all the so-called difficult-to-decarbonize sectors, cement is among the most vexing. Making cement produces CO2 not merely through fuel combustion— in kilns that reach temperatures of up to 1400 C, but also through chemical processes that split CO2 off from other molecules. Cement is responsible for roughly 8% of total global carbon emissions. Most gestures at decarbonizing cement to date are fairly desultory. Things like mixing in special additives or injecting a little CO2 when the cement is finally mixed into concrete. The only widely available method that could theoretically produce no or low-carbon cement is post-combustion carbon capture and sequestration. And there are plenty of people who would question whether that's actually viable at all, much less widely available, given that it would roughly double operational costs for a cement plant. There are lots of startups out there attempting to solve this problem. Perhaps the most intriguing, though, is Sublime Systems, a team that has developed something truly new and exciting. A system for manufacturing cement that requires no high heat, thus no combustion emissions, and uses inputs that contain no carbon, thus no chemical emissions. That makes the cement, at least potentially, not just low carbon, but zero carbon. What's more, the company says that in form and performance, Its product is a perfect drop-in substitute for traditional Portland cement, so it wouldn't even require any changes in the construction industry. A carbon-free drop-in cement substitute at scale and at competitive cost would be genuinely transformative. I contacted Sublime CEO Leah Ellis to talk about cement chemistry, the company's process, and the plan for reaching megaton scale. This one was truly fascinating and educational for me. I think you will really like it. All right, then, uh, Leah Ellis, CEO of Sublime Systems. Welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming.
7: Thank you so much for having me
8: am excited today to talk about concrete everybody's favorite subject but first i wanted to ask you uh, i know you and your partner originally were trained as and educated as battery scientists and i'm just curious how you how you ended up here what drew you into this area this problem
7: yeah my co-founder is a professor at MIT Ming Chang and You know, he's in the material science department, and I'm a chemist by training. Hmm. Um, I like to think of chemistry as the central science that combines everything from physics to biology, um, all of the good stuff you can sort of spread into anything from a foundation in chemistry. So I did my PhD in in lithium ion batteries. I worked with a prolific inventor, Jeff Don. And after that, I, I wanted to continue working with an inventor. As you may know, in academia, there are so many different styles of research. I mean, some Mm -hmm. people like microscopy and mechanisms, but I really like the creative aspect, like discovering something that could be useful or to solve problems. And, you know, not many academics and professors think through that lens. So I've always (laughs) been very lucky (laughs) to work with prolific inventors, both in my master's and my PhD. So for my postdoc, I sought to work with people who thought like that. So, my co founder Yat Ming Chang at MIT is a prolific inventor and also a serial entrepreneur. So, Sublime is uh, his seventh startup, and five yeah. of the previous six have been very successful. So, you know, I didn't join him with the aspiration of becoming a founder I, I really knew nothing about entrepreneurship or anything like that but i did want to invent and i i did love the way he he approaches his work from a, a problem solving standpoint so that's that's what brought us together
8: and he's the one who sort of flagged the problem of concrete to you
7: That's right. So I was always aware that cement was, you know, one of the biggest levers for decarbonization. But, you know, I suppose after my PhD, where I'd worked with, you know, one of the most illustrious battery scientists, I sort of always had thought that my career would be in batteries. Like, I thought I'd painted myself into a corner. And so when I first met Yet Ming Chang, he asked a question that at first I thought was a trick question. He was like, hey, Leia, like, you've got this Canadian Grant to come work with me. And I know you're um, a battery scientist, but aren't you a little bit bored of batteries? (laughs) And I thought that was a trick question because like, he's the battery guru. And I didn't want to like insult him. But honestly, I I didn't really want to. I mean, I sort of shared his opinions that, you know, well, maybe this isn't his opinion. Maybe it's just my opinion. But I think batteries are exciting, but I think there's like sigmoidal growth in any technology where, you know, it starts out slow to build momentum and then it goes through, you know, a period where it's super hyped and then you sort of squeeze all of the innovations out of things. And I think with lithium ion batteries, which was my expertise, like it comes to making the cans a bit bigger and the separators a little bit thinner and tweaks. And, you know, I want to, I don't know, I just want to do something Totally outside the box. And I think that's what Yet offered me the chance to do when he said, you know, if you're bored with batteries, like, why don't we think of a way to apply our electrochemical toolbox to cement? And so the way he came up with that electrochemical cement tagline was, you know, he spends a lot of time thinking about reducing the emissions in the utility sector. And and I think we have all of the technology needed to do that. I mean, not saying it will be easy to deploy solar wind, long duration storage, but at least we have the technology. So that's not necessarily where most of the early stage R&D is needed. And so he was thinking at the time, like, how do we use low cost renewables, assuming that we'll figure out... All of the utility stuff and really get to low-cost intermittent renewables. And how do we take intermittent renewables and apply that to decarbonizing the next biggest tranche of emissions, which is cement? So cement, Mm. if it were a country, would be the third largest emitter after China and the U.S., so it's eight percent of global CO two emissions back in twenty eighteen. It you know fluctuates, um, but it's like seven or eight percent. So it's big game hunting when it comes to decarbonization. So we've always worked backwards from that electrochemical cement tagline.
8: And um, you know it's eight percent of current emissions, but also uh, you make the point um, that's just going to go up, right? There's just right. going to more and more cement as far as the eye can see.
7: Right. And, you know, as everything else, I hope, goes to zero, I think these so-called hard-to-abate sectors like cement and steel, they may be both 7 or 8% now, but in coming years as the grid gets decarbonized, mm-hmm. these numbers are just going to get larger because neither cement nor steel are going to go away. And in fact, you know, we're going to use more cement especially in places like India and Africa that will undergo a phase of dirty growth unless you develop
1: You can hear more from Leah and about cement on The Vault's podcast, for which there'll be a link in the show notes. Join me now at the Washington Post where we have a story that has the headline Ancient Elements of Cool. The story is by Philip Kennicott, In Sima Diab, the story begins. From the mosque in this dusty desert village, you can see the wide terraces and austere columns of one of Egypt's premier tourist destinations, the Temple of Hatshepsut, baking far in the distance. It's late August, and by noon the temperature is already 103 degrees Fahrenheit, and heading well north of that, enough to drive even the most intrepid tourists who visit the site back to their motor coaches. And hotels. But here in New Gorna, there are no tourists, even though this village, placed on the World Monuments Fund watch list in 2010, may be as important to the future of our warming planet as the tombs and temples of ancient Egypt are to the past. It was here that the Egyptian architect Hassan Fathi began a social housing experiment in 1945, planning a town with traditional Nubian materials and design. Defended against the heat with thick walls of mud brick and natural ventilation. Passive cooling techniques that had, for millennia, been an essential part of local architecture. And now from The Guardian we have the story, Queensland weather. State braces for heatwave as thousands face prospect of days without power. The story from Australian Associated Press begins. Areas of Queensland affected by unprecedented storms now face the prospect of days without electricity amid extreme heat. Storms and flash flooding across southeast Queensland have claimed the lives of seven people since Christmas, but households have now been warned to prepare for a heatwave. The Federal Disaster and Emergency Management Minister, Murray Watt, said on Thursday, residents should look out for neighbours were elderly or living with disability. If you have fans or air conditioning available and have got the power on, today is the day to use it, Watt said. If you don't have that, today is the thing about using public libraries, public pools and other spaces to stay safe. Next, we have another story from The Guardian, and this story is by Geneva Abdul. The headline of the story says... Self-driving cars could be on UK roads by 2026, says Transport Secretary. The story begins. Autonomous vehicles could be on UK roads as soon as 2026, the Transport Secretary has said, as ministers seek to capture as much as $42 of the international self-driving market within the coming decade. This technology exists, it works, and what we're doing is putting in place the proper legislation so that people can have full confidence in the safety of this technology, Mark Harper told BBC Radio 4's Today program on Wednesday. Asked if people would be able to travel in self-driving vehicles with your hands off the wheel, doing your emails, in 2026, Harper replied, Yes, and I think that's when companies are expecting, in 2026, during that year, that we'll start seeing this technology rolled out. Responding to a question from the former Top Gear presenter, James May, who was today's guest editor, about why the government was supporting the development of autonomous driving, Harper claimed there were a few reasons. He said, I think it will actually improve road safety. We already have a very good road safety record in Britain, but there are still several thousand people a year killed on our roads. That could be improved. And now we have a story from the Melbourne Age by Anne Highland. The headline of the story is From Miss Australia to Oil Boss, Sue Ellen Osborne's Nation Building Plan. Let's listen to the
5: audio from that story now. The oil and gas industry isn't typically a refuge for beauty pageant winners. But then again Sue Ellen Osborne, a former Miss Australia, isn't your typical oil and gas executive. The 48-year-old is spearheading an ambitious project in a nation that has challenged some of Australia's biggest companies, Timor-Leste. Osborne's company, Timor Resources, has been working for the past seven years in a joint venture with Timor Gap, the national petroleum company, to explore and develop a handful of onshore oil and gas wells on the country's south coast in an area that spans more than 3,000 square kilometres. The project, which now wants to raise a further States million, million, to move towards production, offers the Timor-Leste government a chance to turn around the alarming decline in its economy's revenue. Forecasts are that the nation, which secured its independence in 2002, could be broke within a decade. Osborne, the founder and managing director of Timor Resources, says her company is the only international onshore operator of onshore oil and gas in Timor-Leste and wants to bring into production certified reserves of 21.1 million barrels of oil equivalent. The company and its private equity partners have already invested $72 million United States dollars into the project. It's been very costly and mentally very challenging and draining, working with governments, stakeholders and investors to get this project going, but it will all be worth it in the next two years when we get oil and gas online, says Osborne. There have been many hurdles including a funding dispute between Timor Resources and the government-owned Timor Gap which Osborne says is now almost resolved. More challenges lay ahead. Securing 200 million United States dollars in debt funding won't be easy with interest rates for loans at their highest in almost a decade and few banks and institutional investors willing to back new oil and gas projects. However, Osborne remains undeterred. Everyone saying petroleum hydrocarbon projects are finished That's not true. Anyone who understands the industry would recognize the need for these developments still to be carried out. To the Timorese government, it's a project of national significance. She says the joint venture project may consider Chinese investment. I said we'd make it happen, the prospectivity is not in question. In September, Timor Leste's government revealed it had upgraded its ties with China to a comprehensive strategic partnership agreeing to cooperate under the Belt and Road initiative that has been championed by China's President Xi Jinping, which could open the way for infrastructure investment. Timor-Leste's government is keen to develop its natural resources, of which it has plenty, and which are critical to the island nation's economy. Its main source of revenue, the Bayu undan oil and gas field, has been depleted, and other offshore gas projects such as the greater sunrise fields have been stuck in limbo for decades given the numerous disputes between the Timorese and Australian governments and the operator Woodside. The latest dispute of the Greater Sunrise Fields, which lie 150 km from Timor-Leste, is the location of an LNG processing plant. Timor-Leste's government wants it located on its soil and the gas piped there rather than Woodside's preferred option of the established energy hub of Darwin. Rick Wilkinson, chief executive of advisory firm EnergyQuest, said the drawn-out negotiations around Greater Sunrise would make investors cautious about backing onshore oil and gas development in Timor-Leste. If the perceived risk is higher than investors will want more security. But he also noted, there's no question that any potential for onshore development of oil and gas in East Timor is critical to the new nation. The transition of Timor-Leste, formerly known as East Timor, to a democracy has been troubled over the past two decades, as leader battling poverty, unemployment and corruption. Damien Kingsbury, emeritus professor at Deakin University, who has worked in Timor-Leste extensively since the mid-1990s, says despite the challenges facing an onshore oil and gas project it has a distinct advantage. The driving reason behind the desire to develop an onshore facility for an onshore field is Timor-Leste is desperate for revenue. And there's no prospect at this stage of greater sunrise proceeding. Kingsbury said Timor-Leste's government was expected to run out of money by about 2033 based on current expenditure rates and lack of revenue. The current budget proposed for next year and subsequent years reduces spending by 18% year-on-year. Now that is intended to limit government spending to address the decline in the sovereign wealth fund, the petroleum fund, which is overwhelmingly the principal source of money for Timor-Leste and government, he said. That level of cuts to government spending will mean something like a 15 to 16 percent reduction in the economy year on year. This is a country that already has 50 percent malnutrition rate and around 40 percent poverty rate. So cutting government spending, which drives about 85-90% to of the economy, will have a massive impact on the standard of living. They are desperate to find alternative sources of income. After winning the Miss Australia contest in 1998, Sue Ellen Osborne went to work for her father, David Fuller, who had founded the private group Nepean Engineering, a company that initially supplied equipment to the mining and construction sectors, such as conveyor belts and structural steel for skyscrapers. It has since expanded to supply other industries, such as defence, medical and aerospace. David Fuller passed away in 2019, having handed the reins to his son Miles. During his lifetime his interests also included stakes in mining and resource companies, land developments and commercial, industrial and agricultural property. My father was a high net worth individual with assets in lots of different classes, says Osborne. He had agricultural properties. He had mining and equity interests of a large-scale right across the globe in different projects. Osborne says her father bought a number of agricultural properties from AMP when the Insurance and Funds Management Group was once one of the largest landowners in the country. She says her extended family now owns one of the largest private farm groups in New South Wales, running cattle and sheep. For almost three decades, Osborne has worked in the mining and resources sectors of oil, gas and gold, including in Papua New Guinea and Timor-Leste, as well as in land development for her father. My dad was determined for me to get involved in the mining and construction projects, which he allowed me to lead from very early on. In addition to Timor Resources, Osborne's currently overseeing a large-scale residential land subdivision in New South Wales, near Tea Gardens on New South Wales's mid-north coast, and another in Manuka Valley, in southwestern Sydney. However, it's Timor Resources that takes up most of her time. I've been privileged to manage and operate different businesses, while focusing most of my efforts on this oil and gas play in Timor-Leste.
2: Yes,
1: we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. Now, please, I'd love you to follow this podcast, because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Beyond that, I'd love to hear from you. I want to know what you think about this podcast. So, good or bad, please email me at r.mclean7 at icloud.com. Now, don't hold back. As I said, good or bad, please let me know. Also... I'd love you to share this with your friends because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. Who's saying what, why they're saying it, when they're saying it, and what it means to the world generally. You can help share this podcast. Help people better understand what's happening. So, until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now stay safe and take care no matter how hard i try i always forget something so please don't forget to check out the show notes as my screen is still alive with stories about the climate crisis i'll put as many links as i can in the show notes so please go there read them think about it take some action we need your help now take care and stay safe